Well, today's the day we celebrate the resurrection, the fact that we don't serve a dead Jesus. We serve a risen, living, reigning Jesus. And, and most of the time on, on Resurrection Sunday morning, we were talk, constantly talking about the fact that uh, Jesus overcame sin and death and the devil. And we're talking about the evidence for the resurrection. Last year we did that, the evidence for the resurrection. But I just feel led in a different direction this year. Um, and, and maybe it's where I am right now, but I just have a sense of the Holy Spirit wanting us to look at a single word, and it's the word grace. I just got one big idea for you today, and it's super simple. And the big idea is this. Grace changes everything. Changes everything. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 8. I, wanna, I want you to look at a text that is such a radical picture of grace that many people in the early church, a lot of the early um, um, scribes actually took it out of the text. In your Bibles, you might see there's a little thing there that says many of the early manuscripts don't have this text right at the beginning, right at the end of John 7, beginning of John chapter 8, because many early scribes thought it was too radical. They thought grace can't be this radical, it can't be this complete, it can't be this amazing, so they just kind of left it out of the text. And in fact, we have some manuscripts where it's put in different places, and we even have some manuscripts where it's put in an appendix at the end because they knew it was authentic, but it was just so radical, it it blew people's mind. It just, this, this grace can't be this good. And whenever I hear that, I'm, I'm drawn to that. Now I want to look at this text. I really want to look at this text. This is how radical grace is. John chapter 8, verse 1. Let's look at this story. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. The word there, caught, is like, like an animal gets trapped. It gets caught in a trap. Now, we don't know, did the Pharisees set this trap for this lady, or, or, or was she just caught in another way? Either way, this is what sin does to you. Sin catches you. It, it, it's a trap. She was caught. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught, there's the word again, in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap. I find this interesting. So that first they trap her so that they can trap him in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, I want you to see, Jesus here is in a no-win scenario. This is what we sometimes call a catch-22. For those of you who are Star Trek fans, this is the Kobayashi Maru. Some of you don't, aren't Star Trek fans. I call you blessed in particular. But this is like the, the, the ancient Near Eastern Jewish version of the Kobayashi Maru. The Kobayashi Maru is this impossible situation that Starfleet Academy puts all their commanders in. It's a no-win situation. It's lose-lose. And, and that's basically what Jesus is in here. And, and for us, we kind of think, well, how is this a trap? I mean, just say no. Go away. But he can't do that because in Roman law, uh, the Jews weren't allowed to carry out capital punishment, right? So, so if he says stone her, he's committing treason against Rome. If he says don't stone her, he, he's committing treason against the Mosaic law. So what, what's he going to do? Now, they are slightly misquoting the law here, and I won't dive into all of that, but they are slightly misquoting this. But the problem is he's in a dilemma. So what do you do when you get in a dilemma like this? What does Jesus do? Next sentence. This is bizarre. Jesus bent down 
and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now, the Greek word here can be write or draw. It can be translated either way. So this is kind of a bizarre thing. I don't know. What, what do you think he's doing? He's, is he doodling? Is he doing like math equations? E equals MC squared. You guys don't know this yet. A couple thousand years. God's going to come along. You're going to figure this out. Is, is he quoting Hebrew scriptures? Is he composing poetry or a musical score? Uh, one pastor that I, I read suggested that maybe he's listing their sins. Can you imagine? Chuck. Lied on his taxes to Caesar. Didn't do an OL3 to the city of Capernaum last week. We don't know what he's writing. And we don't even know why we're even told what he wrote. I mean, I, I think it's one of those unexplained details that are a feature of eyewitness testimony. When, when you get eyewitness testimony, sometimes you get details that you don't even know why they're there. They're not explained. It's just kind of there. In verse 7, when... They kept on questioning him. Apparently, they weren't impressed with his writing uh, or drawing or whatever. He straightened up and said to them, if any of you is without sin. And the word there is not without this particular sin. It's without any sin. If any of you is without any sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote, on the ground. Now look how brilliant this is. Jesus, they're trying to set him up in a dilemma, right? Go against Mosaic law or go against Roman law. And he says, you got it all wrong. It's about your heart. You need to examine yourself. Verse 9. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left. Until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? In verse 11, No one, sir, she said. And hear these beautiful words. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. Now, I want you to hear me this morning. That statement by Jesus in verse 11 is uh, it's a dis- distillation, really, of the distinctive message of the New Testament. In fact, it's not an exaggeration to say the rest of the New Testament is an explanation of this one. So it's why we're here today. Here what he, here's what he's not saying. She isn't responsible for her own actions. He says, go and sin no more. He isn't saying, he's not saying, hey, I accept your apology. She didn't apologize. He's not even saying, if you go and sin no more, then I will not condemn you. He's not saying that. What he is doing is issuing a a declaration of divine forgiveness, even though she's guilty. Apart from her actions, irrespective of the fact that she doesn't deserve it, she isn't worthy. By an act of divine will, she is forgiven. Set not, it's called grace. And it's the most important concept for every single one of us this morning, whether you've been coming to New Life Church for 30 years or if this is your first Sunday here. Now let's look at a little bit closer. Let's unpack this very radical idea of grace. If you want a deeper understanding of grace, let's just kind of dive into this story. And I pray that the Holy Spirit gives us just some illumination here. He speaks to us through this text. 
I want to make some statements here to kind of unpack this. Number one, if you don't get this, you, you won't understand grace. Number one, we're not so different from this woman. Can we just start with that? That we're not so, Now, we don't know a whole lot about this woman. In fact, we know very little at all. We don't even know her name. But if you've been around here a while, you know that when you're reading in the Gospels and somebody shows up and they're faceless, that is, they don't have a name, you, the reader, are invited to put yourself in their sandals and you encounter Jesus through the story. So the invitation is for you to put yourself in this woman's that We don't know hardly anything about her except one thing, and that one thing is she's guilty. She's been caught. Remember the text says she's caught as in a trap. She doesn't protest her innocence. We're really not so different from this woman for a couple of reasons. First of all, we're not so different from this woman because we've all sinned. Scripture says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all, like sheep, have gone astray and turned our own ways. No one is righteous. No, not one. There's no soft place to land here. We've all sinned, all of us. And if you're thinking, yeah, but I've never done that, then you're just revealing that you haven't taken into account how deadly sin really is. And yes, not all sin has equal consequences, but all sin separates. There's a lot of sins in scriptures that we kind of wink at, like pride. Oh man, how many times has my heart been full of pride? Or selfishness? Or greed? It is the spirit of the age we live in. Have you ever thought about this? Do you think it might be sinful for the richest people on the planet to be ungrateful and complain about what they don't have? Did did you know that every person in this room is in the top 10% of the richest people globally? All of us? Some in the top 2%? And we complain about what we don't have? I, I do this. You know, the other day, we, we have an old TV in our, in our, in our living room. It's an you know, old, old school flat screen. And the older it gets, the, the picture be, is, is like bleeding off the screen. And so when you're watching a basketball game, whichever scores on the right side of the screen, like when it goes down to the bottom, you know, they got the two scores, you can't see the score. So you only have half the score. You don't know what the score of the game is until halftime or until timeout where they put the score in the middle. You know, so the other day we're sitting there, and I'm getting irritated. Because I don't know what the score is watching this basketball game. And then I'll check my email, and I get an email from LifeWater, which is one of the ministries that we support here, doing a water project in Ethiopia. And they were celebrating the fact that for the first time, this village had clean drinking water. As I'm complaining about, I I can't see the score at a basketball game. Wait, you think think God might look down at that and go, Really? You're one of the richest people on the planet, and you're c- complaining about you can't see the score of the game? What am I saying? Let's just be careful we don't judge her too quickly. We're a lot like this lady. We're, the second thing is we're not so different from this woman because we're all filled with longing. Apparently, this woman is, like all of us, filled with a longing for something more. She wants to be loved, but she's looking for it in the wrong places. And, 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 and you see that in every single one of us. Every single one of us has what Pascal called a God-shaped vacuum in our soul that is designed to be filled with the only person in the universe that can fill the whole universe, God himself. 
Augustine put it this way. He said, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless indeed until they find their rest in thee. What is he saying? Just that nothing else in the world, no one else in the world, no matter how beautiful or noble or good or right, nothing will fill that vacuum in your soul, will satisfy your longing. Only God can fill the thirst in your soul. Maybe you're here today for the first time and you know there's a longing in your soul. If you're honest, if you're honest, you know that deep down in your heart, there's got to be more to life than this. You have this longing in you. Listen, don't feel guilty about the longing that is out. It, it, it was desi- God put it in you to push you towards him because he's the only one that can fulfill it. Here's the good news. Just as this woman encountered Jesus unexpectedly, like she's preparing to die, she's preparing to get stoned, and and she runs into grace, so can you. Because the same Jesus is here today. So that's number one. We're not so different from this woman. Number two, if we think we are, then we're more like the Pharisees. I mean, there's only three characters in the story you can identify with, the woman, the Pharisee, or the Jesus. Or not the Jesus, Jesus. See, if you think you are better than this woman, then you're identifying with the Pharisees in the story. That's the role they play. They think they're better. She's the sinner. They're the religious elite. And to be honest with you, it doesn't take a very good preacher to trash the Pharisees. That's pretty easy. We might define a Pharisee the way H.L. Mencken defined a Puritan. He said a Puritan was a person who has the haunting fear that someone somewhere just might be happy. Historically, a a, a Pharisee has become synonymous with hypocrisy. And it doesn't really take a spiritual gift of discernment to detect hypocrites at church. Every once in a while, somebody will say, come up to me and and say, you know, there's hypocrites at church. As if they're telling me something new. I don't know. As if I haven't been that guy. Myself. I I don't go to church because there's hypocrites there. Really, that's like saying, you know, I really like going to the hospital, but every time I go, there are sick people there. That's why we call it a hospital. Of course there's hypocrites at church. That's why we call it a church. And that's why you're welcome too. Here's my point. Here's my point. If we're not careful, we can easily become the Pharisees in this story. And I have been. Judging others as if I was better than them. Judging others as if my sin was less. But I want you to note something. Just notice here, because let's, let's not go off on the Pharisees. At the end of the day, religious people are just dealing with the same longing all the rest of us are dealing with. They're just trying to cram religion into the vacuum. And religion won't fill the vacuum. Only God himself will fill it. Don Williams, a vineyard pastor out in California, he wrote a book called Jesus and Addiction. And in it, he describes his own addiction. He writes, I sat on the brink of a nervous breakdown. Even in that state, there was no way I could admit my addictions to adrenaline caused by crisis situations, caffeine, sugar, my self-image as a radical Christian, and my many codependent relationships in the church where I served. Later, I would come to understand, get this, that I was unconsciously using my tumultuous life to fill an emptiness in my soul that only God could heal. 
But at that time, I stuffed my ministry little by little into the void instead. The more I stuffed addictive behaviors into the painful void, the bigger it grew. It would not be filled. Nothing. Nothing. Not even ministry to other addicts will fill the vacuum in your soul. Only God can do that. One of the interesting twists in the story is that Jesus... Jesus actually is is pretty gracious in his response to the Pharisee. He's actually giving them a gift. He helps them see that they're a lot like this way. He says, okay, well, you who are without sin, you throw the first stone. And what do they do? They walk away. I mean, you guys, can I just say this? We often rip on the Pharisees here, but at least they were self-aware enough to realize they had sin. And they didn't throw. Some church people still throw the stone. So listen, this story is, is first of all, about grace for us. It is for us. And you need to hear Jesus saying to you, neither do I condemn you today. You need to hear that. But this is also a story about how we treat other people. For us, yes. But through us, yes. It's inviting us to reflect. Be like Jesus to those who are caught. So we're a lot like this one. We're not all that different if we think we are all that different than than we're more like the pharisees number three she got to a place where only jesus was left now i've read this story i don't know a hundred times probably i don't know but but i've never seen this until a few weeks ago one by one they leave the text says until only jesus was left and it was only when jesus was the only one left that she heard neither do i condemn you this is the place of healing the place of peace, the place of joy, the place of satisfaction in God when you get to the place where only Jesus is left. In other words, we need to get to a place where all the other voices that would condemn us are gone. And not just the voices that would condemn us. We need to get to a place where all the stuff we've hoped in, all all the stuff we put our trust in, all the stuff we found our identity in is gone. Uh, When you find your identity or your well-being in anything or anyone else other than Jesus, it can be taken from you. I mean, if you find your identity in the fact that you're a good parent, what happens when your uh, son or daughter makes a bad choice? You're not just sad, you're crushed. Because that was your identity. By the way, just a side note here, there's only been one perfect parent ever, and his kids rebelled. I'm talking, I'm talking about God, if you know that. I know, somewhere, Pastor Carol? No, no, no. No. You ever think about that? God's a perfect parent. He put his kids in the perfect home environment in the Garden of Eden. And they rebelled. So don't feel so bad. Here's the point, though. If you, if, if, if you make being a good parent your identity, it can be taken from you. If you make your job your identity, if you make the money you have, if you, if you make the fact that you're a good person, what happens when you screw up? When all the stuff that you've been hoping in, all the stuff you've been resting in, all of that stuff you found your identity in is lost and gone and only Jesus is left. Everyone else has exited stage left and just Jesus is standing there and you find yourself in him. And you say, my hope is in you, my trust is in you, my identity is in you. That's when you feel the divine power of sheer grace. And listen, I know there's some people here who are in a place of brokenness. And your world's been shaken. 
and only Jesus. Let me just encourage you with this. This lady, she thought it was over. She thought it was the end. And then she experienced grace. Number four. And I know what you're thinking. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it's bonus point Sunday. <laughs> Not only that, hey, hey, it's Easter Sunday. It's double bonus point Sunday, okay? All right. But number four, back to number four, otherwise known as bonus point. Number one, Jesus does not define her by her sin. Oh, this is something of an example of what we talked about last week. If you were here last week, 2 Corinthians 5, you know, one died for all, therefore all died. Therefore, we don't know anybody after the flesh. Paul said, we see everybody through the lens of the Christ. Every single person you meet is not some other guy. Every single person you meet is someone for whom Christ died. And you should see them through the lens of the cross. As John Wesley said, when he saw a beggar, he didn't see a beggar. He saw someone purpled over in the blood of Christ. Remember that last week? Well, that, that's basically what Jesus is doing here. And you say, well, how, how, how do you know that? Because he says to her, woman. Now. Let's be careful here. I know this is hard for us to understand. It's a different culture. How many of you know that if I were to go up to Marlene after the service today and say, woman, it's time to leave. That wouldn't go over very well. Right? Raise, raise your hand if you ever met a woman. And then you know that would not go over well. If I say, woman, you're okay. Some of the rest of you are just smart aleck. Okay? It wouldn't go over well. And that sounds, because it sounds chauvinistic, right? It sounds like, like that, don't, oh, Jesus, ooh, don't say that. It works totally different in that culture. When he says to her, woman, he's using the very exact same language he uses for his own mother when he's on the cross in chapter 19. Woman, behold your son. What is he doing? He's treating her as family. He, he doesn't call her adulterer. He, he calls her woman. In other words, you're made in the image of God. And you're someone for whom he was going to die. See, Jesus recognizes her identity was greater than what she had done. He doesn't define her by her past. He doesn't define her by her failures, but by his grace. And hear me, he doesn't define you by your past either. And neither should we. Neither should we. Some of us get to the point we, we're, we're guilty, we repent, we change, but, but then we don't allow Jesus to define who we are now. And sometimes what we do is we allow our sin to continue to dictate what we think we're worth. Like instead of the controlling narrative be what Jesus says about us, sometimes we let the controlling narrative be what we say about ourselves because we know how much we failed. We let it determine our value. You know what that is? That's shame. And, and hear me. Shame will imprison you. Grace will set you free. Number five, and finally, bonus point number two. Jesus does not condemn her, but he calls her to a higher life. Neither do I condemn you, he said. Go and leave your life. He could have condemned her. He had every right to condemn her, but he didn't. And he does not condemn you. There is someone here today, you need to hear Jesus saying to you, neither do I condemn you. Earlier, he said in chapter 3, verse 17, for God did not, this is Jesus speaking, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That wasn't his mission. 
but to save the world through him. How was he going to save the world? By grace. Ephesians 2.8, for it is by grace you have been saved. Grace. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. You can't pay for it. But if you let it in, if you will let it in this morning that Jesus does not condemn you, if you let grace in, it will transform you. See, Jesus isn't saying, hey, no big deal, you know, sin, there, sin's no big deal. He's not saying that. No, it is a big deal. That's why grace is so amazing. And if you'll let it in, you won't wink at sin. You, you'll be transformed. One of the greatest pictures in, in all of literature is from one of the, the great novels, one of the great musicals and plays that out there, uh, one of my favorite of all time, Les Mis. And some of you know this, know Jean Valjean was, uh, I think he stole a loaf of bread or something to feed his family, and he gets put in prison for like 15 or 18 years or something. He comes out a hardened criminal. Nobody will have him except the bishop allows him to stay at his house. When he's there, he sees that the bishop has the silver, you know, in the rectory or whatever. That night, he gets up to steal the silver. The bishop comes out. He knocks the bishop out, runs away. The authorities capture him. They bring him back to where the bishop is staying. They open the door, and and, and there's Jean Valjean. He's got a hood on. He's bent over in shame, knowing that he's caught. And the police say, you know, this guy says that you gave him this silver. And the bishop said, well, of course I gave him that silver. Jean Valjean, I'm very mad at you. You didn't take the silver candlestick. They're worth 2,000 francs. And he tells somebody, go get the candlesticks. And and Jean Valjean looks, he's he's totally bewildered that the authorities are completely confused. You you, you mean you actually did give it? He's telling the truth? Yes, yes, yes. And the police depart. And the bishop drops this heavy bag of silver at Valjean's feet. And after peeling away his hood to reveal his guilty face because he's caught, the bishop looks at him and says, don't forget You've promised to become a new man. And Jean Valjean, he's trembling. He he, he makes the promise, and then he asks, Why are you doing this? And the bishop places his hands on Valjean's shoulder, and he says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. Now I give you back to God. And he is changed forever from the inside by grace. And here's the deal. I think this is beautiful. He is so thoroughly changed that later in the story, nobody recognizes him as the criminal that he was. He becomes the benefactor for the town. And when somebody else is is arrested and being accused of being Jean Valjean, and he's going to go to his death, the real Jean Valjean says, no, actually, I'm the real Jean Valjean. And they're like, don't believe him. Because he was so thoroughly transformed, he didn't look like what he had been through. He was changed forever. Listen, the grace of Jesus can transform you today, and it can transform you so thoroughly, you're not the same person you used to be. You're a new creation. And people won't even recognize you as the same person. You used to. I mean, a lot of times in Scripture, God so thoroughly changed people, they didn't look like what they'd been through. Who? Like, let me give you, I'll give you a few examples. The children of Israel coming out of slavery, out of Egypt. They had been slaves for 400 years. Normally, if a people group's been slaves for 400 years, they're going to look poor, beat up, and, and sad, and sick. You know how they walked out of Egypt? 
The Egyptians said, here, take their gold and silver and take our jewelry. And the text says they walked out healed and whole and loaded. (laughs) They've been slaves for 400 years. You couldn't tell it. They didn't look like what they had been through. Or take Joseph. Joseph, at the end of his life, people probably thought, man, he's probably, he probably grew up in Pharaoh's court. He probably grew up with a silver spoon in his mouth. He probably grew up, you know, with wealthy and education. They didn't know. His own family didn't recognize him. He didn't look like what he had been through. I mean, he had been betrayed. He had been sold into slavery, thrown in a pit, went to prison. And people say, well, he must have been educated. As he must, I bet he had it easy his whole life. He didn't look like what he went through. Or how about the three Hebrew young men? Remember, they get thrown in the fiery furnace. First of all, they walk out, and right there, that should be case in point, right there, okay? They walk out of a fiery furnace. But not only that, they didn't even smell like smoke. They didn't look like what they had been They didn't even smell like what they had been through. Or taking the New Testament. How about the demonized man in, in, in Mark chapter 5? There he is, running around naked, screaming, living in in the tombs. He's got a legion of demons in him. And a few verses later, he's sitting there. The text says, clothed and in his right mind. And he's asking to be a disciple. I'm going to come with you, Jesus. Jesus said, no, I'm going to send you. Now, some of you may think, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. But but those people had stuff done, too, that you don't know what I've done. Jesus can redeem you. No matter what you've done. How about the prodigal son? You remember him? Takes his father's inheritance. He goes off. He squanders it in riotous living. At one moment, he comes to himself and goes, what am I doing? Uh, the, the, the house employees have it better in my dad's house than I have it right now. I'm going to go back and say, I'm not worthy to be called a son. You just let me be a servant. And he practices his speech. And when he's a long way off, his father sees him. And he runs to him, and, and Jewish elders didn't run, but he doesn't care because it's his son. And he runs to his son, and he grabs him, and his son goes, you know, launches into his speech. I'm not worthy to be called a son. Make me a son. And he says, be quiet for a second. Bring a ring, bring sandals, bring a robe. My son is home. You know what's amazing? You would have never recognized which son went off and sinned. Because he gave him a robe, he got him shoes, he gave him a ring. What is he doing? He's not saying, you got to stay out there. He's saying, come all the way home. Come all the way into the house. And you get all the benefits of sonship. And he did it. Here's what I'm saying. Here's what I'm saying. The grace of God can transform you today so thoroughly you won't look like what you've been through. You don't have to be defined by your past. You can be defined by the grace of Jesus. And it will save you like it did this woman. It will change you like it did this woman. Because grace changes everything. final note there's a little irony in this story because when jesus says let him who is without sin cast the first stone he was the only one that qualified and he chose not to throw the stone hey you know what the only person in your life who qualifies has decided he's not going to throw the stone Actually, let's be more accurate than that. You know what he really did? He had the stone thrown at him. Because 11 chapters later, Jesus went to the cross. And that's what he's doing in the cross. He's saying, you know what? I'm going to take that lady's place. Throw the stones at me. 
I'm going to take Tim Parrish's place. So throw the stones at me. I'm going to take your place. So throw the stones at me. And he paid the price. But here's the good news. And it's why we're here today. Three days later. On that first resurrection Sunday, the stone was rolled away and he rose from the dead and he lives forever. And that means he doesn't just say, neither do I condemn you, but through that resurrection power, he can empower you to go and sin no more. It's called grace. And it changes everything.